0: talk a little bit about the aerospace industry, specifically Boeing, of course, who puts out a lot of big jet airliners. Uh, Boeing, by the way, shares are up about nine-tenths of a percent as we speak. company has been negotiating one of the largest orders ever of wide-body jetliners with Chinese airlines, uh, even as we see continued trade tensions between Washington and Beijing. This is according to folks in the know. George Ferguson, he is Senior Aerospace Defense and Airlines Analyst at Bloomberg Intelligence. He's on the phone from BI headquarters uh, in Princeton in New Jersey. God, I have to tell you, George, I think about this a lot, this China-U.S. trade spat, what it means for something like a Boeing. Um, tell us a little bit about the story today and what it could mean potentially for the company.
2: Yeah, I think it's, uh, it's just another good example that it's going to be hard uh, for the Chinese to meet their airline's needs uh, without buying products from Boeing. And so uh, th- what they're talking about, purchasing our, our wide-body airplanes, 777s, 787s, Um, You know, as we look at Boeing and Airbus, we really think that um, Boeing has a a bit of a better product lineup in the wide body space. Um, Airbus has sort of positioned their wide bodies a little bit differently. We see a lot of demand for the 787 Triple Seven, less so, but it's been a, it's been a very successful airplane for Boeing over the years. Now they're going to make it even bigger. It's probably the future of the largest airplane uh, in in the in the skies. You know, meaning you won't see four-engine airplanes anymore. The Triple Seven will be the biggest uh, airplane you see sort of regularly flying between city pairs. Um, so we think it really speaks to the fact that if the Chinese airlines want to grow, and they want to grow internationally, and they want the best products, they're going to have a real hard time avoiding. Boeing. So there's going to be a lot of, uh, you know, there's going to be a lot of discussion about how they want to avoid purchases at Boeing in, in retaliation, but it's really hard to do.
1: Yeah. So tell us why it, it's hard to do. I mean, just the importance both of the company as a supplier, but also the importance of China as a customer and China's own ambitions, right? Ultimately, that's what this is about.
2: Yeah I mean you know um air travel in China is growing faster than most other places in the world and it's a huge economy right you got a you got a billion and a half people um their their wealth has been rising Their middle class numbers have swollen or are swelling and um they they want to go internationally they want to see the world we've all been to Europe and you know seen lots of Chinese tourists sort of going, going through the same towns we're going through. Um, you know, so, so and the Chinese airlines want to carry the Chinese people, obviously, intra-China and outside of China. And so the airlines are growing, you know, at a very fast clip. You know, we, we kind of see 10% growth plus for their air travel industry. And because of that, it makes them a really, really, really important customer if you're selling airplanes.
0: George, you know what I think I try to figure out, too, is, you know, with this going on and with Boeing trying to get a deal, what does it potentially tell us about maybe U.S.-China trade talks overall? That is this just another sign that China understands they've got to buy these planes probably from Boeing, right? It's Boeing or Airbus for the most part. And so ultimately they need to get something done so that they can do deals like this because they don't at this point have a huge airplane manufacturer, right? Right
2: yeah i mean in you know, the way i look at it is there's a continuum of products that china is bringing in from uh, outside and 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 they're bringing it in from outside because they can't make it mm. in china but they are coming up the curve uh, to to make some of this stuff right And so airplanes are a, a really um difficult product to make you know it takes it takes uh We've been sort of building airplanes for a bit over a hundred years, and we've perfected the, the um, you know the build over that time. So that means this is probably one of the later um, one of the later industries the Chinese could probably pull in and do themselves. So there can be a lot of bluster over buying airplanes from other people, but it's it's much more it's difficult. Or, or even building themselves, but it's difficult. But if you're down in the continuum at cars or something like that, there's more they can do there. So I think the Chinese know they need some of these products from overseas, and again, but doesn't they'll still saber-rattle a bit. Mm-hmm. But at the end of the day, they've got to come back and, and, and get it from us. So they do have to be careful about how, how aggressive they get, I think, in the trade war.
1: And so, George, help us synthesize kind of what's going on with this big order potentially with the continuing questions around the max enough to offset uh, some of the delays and, and ultimately some of the lost profits and lost revenue?
2: Uh, I think it's going to be hard. The um, You know, so far this has turned out to be a pretty light year for orders even before the MAX problems. Yeah. The bread and butter airplanes in the world, as you know, for the airframers are the A320 and the 737 MAX, the narrow body airplanes. Roughly, you know, sort of sized around 150 seats. They always sell a heck of a lot more of them than they do of wide bodies. Wide bodies have done a bit better this year because the world seems to be fully ordered on those narrow body single aisles. But I don't think I don't think anybody sees Boeing or Airbus being able to make up for a rough year right. on wide bodies, especially especially Boeing. What might be interesting here, though, too, is as these negotiations go on. Over these wide bodies, I would not all at all be surprised if we were in the room, if there was discussion about price discounts and things like that because Yeah, interesting. Of, the problems of 737 MAX. Interesting. Yeah.
1: Complicated negotiations for these big purchases, to say the least. For sure, yeah. George Ferguson, always great to catch up with you. Thanks so much for your insights, as always. Senior Aerospace Defense and Airlines Analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence. <laughs> Let's turn now to the world of medicine and some breakthroughs coming when it comes to headaches, Carol. And we're talking about incredibly severe headaches in this case, cluster headaches. This is a condition that affects nearly 250,000 U.S. adults every year. The drug is called Emgality. It was approved late yesterday by the FDA. It's the first and only treatment for episodic cluster headaches. This is a drug that was approved previously for migraine treatment. Let's understand how we got here and what this may mean for people suffering from these conditions. Christy Shaw is the president of Lilly Biomedicine. She's based out in Indianapolis. She joins us on the phone today from the New York Stock Exchange. Christy, great to have you with Carol and myself.
3: Thank you very much, Jason. So this is
1: a big deal. uh, And I know that it's especially interesting because this is not an easily diagnosed condition. Tell us about cluster headaches.
3: No, uh, it's a very devastating disease. Patients who have cluster headache say that they feel like a ice pick is stabbing them in the back of the eye, and the pain is so severe, they will do anything to try to get rid of it, banging their head against the wall, um, putting their head in a freezer while their loved ones watch on hopelessly. So uh, we're so excited for this community to be able to bring a medicine. Uh, M. like you said, is the first and only treatment for episodic cluster headaches and reduces the frequency of the attacks. So uh, last year, as you um, already talked about too, M. was the third to market approved for... For the prevention of migraine. Mm. And the, my commercial team with their launch excellence has quickly um, taken a leadership role with this next indication and cluster headache. Um, and then later this year, we are hoping to see the approval of lazmididine for the acute treatment of migraine. So really building out a broad uh, migraine portfolio and a leadership position.
0: Christy you know what I think is interesting too is that this is the second approval correct and so I find it fascinating that you know you'll have an existing drug and I know this goes on you know often in the pharmaceutical industry but you you know get approval with an existing drug a second approval or a third approval and a different designation. And I do always wonder about, you know, how much, whether it's Eli Lilly or another pharmaceutical companies, how often do you guys kind of go back and look at, look at existing um, treatments to see, well, like, well, maybe something else, something's changed in the healthcare or medical landscape that maybe this could now apply and be a treatment for something
3: else. Yes, that does. Uh, that happens a lot in uh, cancer and immunology, and we see with Mgality. The reason we studied it here is that the same mechanism responsible for migraine was also responsible for cluster headaches. So it's a CGRP protein when overproduced. Everybody has that, but when overproduced, it, it causes this kind of pain. Uh, so we really follow the science, and uh, if we you know know that uh, the science uh, leads to different diseases, that's that's how we get multiple indications. But typically, it's the same scientific pathway.
1: Well, and as you pointed out, Christy, you're going for approval for acute treatment right now. It's uh, preventative. Help us understand the the difference there. What I obviously understand the difference <laughs> preventative and and acute, but how is that a, a different approval? I just want to make sure I understand that.
3: Sure, absolutely, Jason. It's um so there's about 30 million patients living with migraine overall, mm-hmm. and there's six to seven of them that um, are eligible for preventive treatment. And the eligibility criteria is basically that you have more than four headaches a month, ah. and that's when you would be eligible for taking Emgality um, sh- uh, auto-injector once a month. The acute uh, treatment is another whole market. of already today there's about 7 million patients on acute treatment therapies. Um, but there's, it's been over two decades since we've seen any innovation in uh, migraine even though we've been studying it for over two decades so it's really a uh, great time for people living with migraine both those that have a lot of migraines per month for they can take prevention and for those who get less than four a month can take an acute treatment when they have the attack and then obviously this cluster headache indication brings it to a whole other level and really demonstrates the uh, effect amgality can have in even the most severe patients I am
0: always curious, too, in this environment where we're so focused on the prices and cost of pharmaceuticals, um, how expensive or what will be the cost for this treatment?
3: Sure. So today, taking an injection monthly, the cost is $6,900 a year. We, uh, With this indication, it's given at the onset of the attacks, and you take it monthly until the attacks stop. Now, these attacks can last from 15 minutes to 3 hours Mm -hmm. and they can be every other day or up to 8 times a day. But typically it's just taken during uh, the time that they have these cluster attacks. And then the cost is um, milligram to milligram, the same as the indication that we already have. But the good news is that we, in working with the payers, we have over 80% of the payers covering the medicine so that patients can have access to it immediately.
1: Right. Well, it's a really important drug, and we really appreciate you uh, giving us the time today. Christy Shaw, I know it's a busy day. Christy Shaw is the president of Lilly Biomedicine. She's based out in Indianapolis, joining us on the fro- phone from the New York Stock Exchange. The drug is called Mgality approved just yesterday for the treatment of cluster headache, a condition that sounds awful right apparently
0: it's more prevalent in men i was reading about it too and it typically is for people age 20 to 50 uh 50 but it can happen i guess at any age but it can happen also for weeks or months at a time where you're getting these you know headache not a headache um yeah i just can't even imagine kind of living with that
1: So, Carol, I feel like an underlying theme for us a lot of times is cybersecurity. I think back to the show we hosted at the 9-11 Memorial and Museum, really all about Mm -hmm. uh, cyber. Really fortunate to have a true expert in that area here with us in studio today. That's Brad Gao. He is the head of global cyber risk for Sampo International here in our Bloomberg Interactive Brokers studio. Brad, great to have you with
4: us. It's uh, nice to be with you both.
1: So... Let's start off by just understanding the scope of this. Cybersecurity, very much, as I said, top of mind, but what's the single biggest thing we should be worried about right now as business owners, as business people, as consumers?
4: Jason, I think the, the, the biggest thing business owners need to be conscious of is the fact that the nature of organizations and the network, net, nature of networks has changed so significantly over the past decade. Really, from a from a risk manager's point of view, the value has shifted from brick and mortar and potential liability to more data protection and online uh, operational issues. And uh, in many cases, insurance buying habits really haven't followed that. Hmm. But what we what we saw, especially after the NotPetya malware malware attacks in 2017, was uh, this malware caused such significant operational disruption it ended up impacting many uh, manufacturers and logistics companies to the tune of hundreds of millions of dollars.
0: So I'm curious we've got a story in the magazine it's actually on the Bloomberg uh, by our Austin Carr and it's just talking about the next generation of chip and it really takes kind of processing to a whole other level to the point of parallel computing thinking more like a brain um, but I do wonder about, as we have more devices talking to one another and determining outcomes, what does that mean in terms of security and insurance, uh, ultimately, in terms of less problems, more problems, accountability? How do you guys see it?
4: Well, I mean, the Internet of Things is the uh, you know introduction of billions or tens of billions of everyday items that end up uh, end up communicating with each other or talking with each other and so what what that does is generate a tremendous amount of data many many t- you know uh, many times uh, you know what what's what's been collected over the past few years and the the trick for organizations is to take all that data and you know tease out of it information that allows them to monetize it right and i i while well, that creates a tremendous opportunity for organizations and and, and certainly the social media companies mm. have have taken advantage of 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 all those different streams of, of data and monetizing them uh, it it becomes very much a threat to organizations who may not be tracking what they collect they they may not be paying attention to all the data that's in their possession and is their responsibility that they're not protecting
1: so you cannot talk about cybersecurity without talking about elections is certainly certainly in the year 2019 which is the year before 2020 uh so much we know now about what happened in 2016 what is what is actually happening from your estimation in terms of making sure we're better protected here in the United States as we go into another presidential election.
4: Oh, I, I, first, network security, I, given the the complexities of modern networks, network security is really, really hard. Mm-hmm. It, it's very much an interdisciplinary exercise. And campaigns are, you know, by definition, very ephemeral. Mm. They, uh, you know, they start small, they grow, they may falter, and... Come November sixth, the next election date, um, you know they go away forever, and so you've got a uh, a staff, a volunteer staff that is many of them are unpaid, most of them are untrained, and you don't have uh, in in most cases a, a tremendous amount of budget, and so network security is something that doesn't pay off immediately. It's it it's it's much more tempting to. Uh, spend that money on an ad buy rather than on network security. So So maybe
0: we should be happy that a lot of municipalities haven't been able to upgrade. They haven't had the funds to upgrade to a higher technology form of voting, right? I mean, some of them are still in their old systems, and that in some ways may be more secure potentially with the upcoming elections versus some of those machines, those voting machines that are more digital.
4: Well, In terms of of, uh, adopting that voting technology, uh, you know, the, their inability with older networks not to be able to do that is, 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 I think, I agree. It certainly helps everybody. But the challenges that we see with municipalities, uh, in in cities, is that their IT plants are usually very, very old. Yeah. And so they're running Windows two thousand three. They're run, running Windows yeah. XP. Uh, you know, software that's that's no longer supported by the manufacturer, and so patches don't come out. And you have um, you, like these NSA tools that were released last year. Microsoft and others rushed out patches, but they didn't rush out patches for all of their older versions of software that a lot of these mun- municipalities are running. And so you see, mm-hmm. you know, like City of Baltimore suffering has been suffering for the past month from a, uh, a malware incident. You know, a lot of that stuff is caused by outdated, unpatched.
1: So who's equipment. doing it right out there? Like w- w- when you look at either a, a country or a government, a, a city, a company, who are, or an in industry even, like who's got their arms around this the best?
4: It, Jason, if I were to choose an industry, I'd, I'd have to select the financial services mm-hmm. industry, not only because uh, they've been able to attract a lot of the, the top cybersecurity and network security you know expertise into their shops because they've got the money to, but and this can't be uh, you know discounted they've been more heavily regulated right over the past fifteen years, and those regulations they, you know, no one's been able to get away with not securing their networks, right. so they were certainly well ahead of the game. Compared they had to, to be, though, right? right? Because
0: one little, you know, fallout, uh, and then kind of the whole system comes tumbling down. Uh, but it has created, right, this whole insurance industry, right, in terms of cybersecurity concerns.
4: It's the cyber insurance market is has been the fastest growing segment of the commercial PNC market over the past decade. Wow.
1: Amazing. That's amazing. Amazing. Brad Gow is head of global cyber risk for Sampo International. Joining us here in our Bloomberg Interactive Brokers Studio. Certainly a topic we're going to be keeping an eye on. We certainly appreciate you stopping by. (laughs)
0: Welcome to the Age of One-Shot Miracle Cures. Great and amazing, right? Sounds really amazing. It comes, though, at a bit of a cost. Michelle Cortez wrote this story. It will be in this week's edition of Business Week magazine. It hits newsstands tomorrow. It's already... Uh, you can find it on the Bloomberg and at Bloomberg.com. Michelle is health science and medical technology reporter at Bloomberg News. She joins us on the phone from Minneapolis, Minnesota, along with Jill Weber, Bloomberg Business Week editor. He is in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. Michelle, let's kick it off with you. Tell us about this story this week.
5: Well, it, it, it is not just a story of this week. It's been going on for, for years now, and it's the promise of gene therapy, right? Since we have decrypted the human genome, We've been waiting for 15 years to actually revolutionize medicine, and I think we're really starting to see some of that happen now. And basically, it's exactly what you, what you would think. You, there's something that's in people's bodies, in their genetic makeup, that's a defect. Researchers have been able to hone in on that, figure out a way to get a healthy copy of the defective gene into a virus. They inject the virus into your body. The gene latches on and starts taking over for the damage that was It was done before you were even born. It's really scientifically a miracle.
1: So, Joel, come on in here because one of the things that struck me as I was reading this is, as Michelle says, this is something that they've been working on for a while. But the sooner-than-you-think element seems to be this could radically change, like, drug, treatment, therapy, the medical world, all
6: of it. Just as it fixes something, you know, these diseases that forever we've thought have been— effectively incurable right like a bubble boy who has to live inside of a plastic bubble and suddenly one shot and he no longer has to right so while we can fix that it might break everything else around right (laughs) because how much do you think a miracle cure like that costs you know put a price tag on it
0: millions of dollars billions to develop i think
6: i think a million would be the low ball number right and so we're talking one two three million plus yeah and you know the drug companies, which um, you know is part of the story here, um, and and Michelle's done a, a great job um, talking about both sides of this. One of the arguments for the price tag being this high is: look, like what what was the cost of the 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 previous way that you're going to do right. that? Living inside a bubble, how much did that cost? And with one shot, we can end all of that. So. You know, the healthcare system, which already wasn't really in great shape, maybe you've noticed, um, suddenly has this whole other thing, but it is solutions based in in really a magical kind of way. And I think we're just beginning to see how this is going to unfold because we've barely begun to see it in practice. Nor do we know what the side, side effects of this is gonna, are going to potentially be either.
0: Well, and that's it. Like, let's talk a little bit about the cost. And that is, the, you know, one of the things is the side effects, Michelle. We don't know. Why is it a little bit more complicated uh, with this process and using gene therapy?
5: Right. Well, it is side effects. And it's not just side effects. It's, it's, it's there's so much that we don't know about how gene therapies work. The Like I said, it's impl- It's something that, that they're putting into your body. And they're doing it in kids, and these kids, they're going to grow, they're going to go through puberty, the women are maybe going to have kids of their own. You have no idea how all of these hormonal changes and life changes are going to affect what's happening in your body naturally. And we haven't, most of these have only been studied for a handful of years. So we have no idea whether there's going to be some interaction that can't be predicted. And the scary thing about that for patients and for families is that this is a permanent thing. It's not like you can just stop taking the drug and hopefully the side effects will will wane or go away after time. Like this is, it's a done deal. Maybe some of these are implanted, they go into the liver and the liver cells turn over. So over time, they might stop working so if you're a child who has this this defect right that you can't protect yourself against infections but you've been cured of it and then all of a sudden 5 10 20 years down the road all of a sudden you're getting sick all the time well you have to remember maybe that gene therapy it bought you 10 or 20 years but maybe not a lifetime we we have no idea we just don't know right we just don't know so so we don't know sooner than you
6: Go ahead, Michelle.
5: I just wanted to say the sooner than you think element here is, is that it's been 15 years and we have our first approval that just came last month. But next year, they're thinking 20 or 30 drugs. So it, the sooner than you think part is your entire life, your taxes might be changed by this. And that's going to happen wow. before anyone, especially the healthcare system, is ready for it.
6: And, and what are the different diseases that um, w- we should expect that this, th- these treatments w- are going to go after?
5: Well, the first approval was for um, a a drug for uh, spinal muscular atrophy, and that's a terrible condition that it's a leading cause of genetic death in infants. Most of them die before the age of two, and you can think of it as like ALS in babies, right? Your brain... Messages don't make it to your muscles, so your muscles don't move, and it's it's a terrible, terrible mm. thing. Then obviously the what this sto- story talks about is bubble boy disease, but even things like hemophilia, even right. if they're doing it in Parkinson's disease and cancer. It's we're crossing everything here.
1: It's a really powerful That's story.
6: The, I mean, the wow yeah. effect here, right? The, some of the the worst diseases and conditions you can think of. Right. right. Like solved with one
1: shot. Yeah, it's amazing. Uh, very much worth reading. It's in, as Carol said, Bloomberg Business Week, sooner than you think, issued this week. Available, the story is, on Bloomberg.com and the Bloomberg Terminal today.
2: I'm rather in my car.
0: it is time for the drive to the close on this Wednesday. Yana Barton is back with us, equity portfolio manager at Eaton Vance, uh, on the phone from Boston. Uh, nice to have you here with us. It's been a fascinating week. U.S.-China trade front and center. <laughs> heard from a lot of Fed officials. We've also heard from Jay Powell, head of the uh, Federal Reserve, seeming to indicate that you know, while well, not saying that he's willing to cut rates, seeming to indicate that he's willing to do so because to kind of counterbalance uh, some of the pressures. On the market and the economy because of the trade tensions, Yana, uh, how do you
7: see it? Great to be back with you. There's been uh, certainly no no lack of uh, data coming our way, and I think, you know, as we have the intensity of the macro data coming at us, I think we need to take a pause and really focus on uh, micro or company specific fundamentals. And I think if I can ask your listeners to sort of start with a blank sheet of paper and draw a vertical line, uh, almost like a balance sheet of assets and liabilities. There are plenty of things that we are worried about for the right reasons. Obviously, trade tensions being at the center of that, uh, forcing uncertainty for investors and also business confidence, inverted yield curve, questions about economic growth. But on the flip side, on the asset side of the equation, you also have – some good things that have been forgotten, and that is consumer, um, who is the backbone of this economy, remains strong with the confidence uh, being higher um, uh, month over month. Employment is strong. Wages are strong. Housing could potentially be turning with interest rates lower. Monetary policy is no, no longer a, a, a headwind. So, all in all, I think there there certainly is a lot for us to uh, look through, but if one uh, takes a long-term posturing, as one should with equities being a long-duration asset, I think there's a lot to like, especially with sentiment coming under pressure here as we sit here today. And... Uh-
1: Yana, I know you are pretty heavily invested in the tech sector. Talk to us about what's going on there. A lot of headline risk, at least, feels like it's coming through the markets. But help us understand the conviction level around some of the big tech names. I'm thinking Amazon. I'm thinking Alphabet. I'm thinking Salesforce, et cetera. Facebook.
7: Yeah, that's fair, Jason. And I think, you know, if you think about the information technology space and again as growth investors in our focused growth strategy at Eden Bands, we certainly have exposure to what we call secular growth stories. And these are investment opportunities that are really underpinned by long term secular trends that are here to stay for years, not just over the quarter. And many of the names that you mentioned are sort of at the forefront of uh, what we believe is a disruption that's taken place. Cloud computing, um, Amazon as it relates to e commerce and cloud computing computing. computing, Facebook and Google as it relates to ad search and autonomous vehicles and others, Salesforce, again, cloud computing and and so forth. But that being said, the regulatory um, uh, pressures are um, certainly not something we're dismissive of. Um, I guess, again, as we take a step uh, back and we understand that those might pressure the multiples in the stock. In a world that is still starved for growth, there are not a lot of companies that are growing top line in excess of 20%. And all of the ones that I mentioned are within that very top tier of echelon of companies that can sustainably continue to grow their top line because of these long-term disruptive um, tailwind. So, again, short-term, um, some uncertainty, obviously, as all of this sifts through. But longer-term, um, you know, they continue to be core holdings for us.
0: But, you know, so we had one guest, and this is a story that was, I think, the most read in the past 60 minutes, and this has to do with um, a tech fund manager, or global money manager, I should say, managing about $442 billion and coming out and telling Bloomberg TV. We're talking about Sima Shah over at uh, Principal Global Investors, and she's basically saying we're seeing a top. Uh, She says the great times for technology are probably behind us now. You don't see it that way. I mean, Amazon, Alphabet are your top, I think, one and two are among your top holdings. Facebook's up there as well. Salesforce is in there. We know we got earnings from that company this week. Um, You don't see it that way.
7: I don't, only... Listen, we are in an interesting time in the market, and I think uh, the safety trade is really not safe. And what I mean by that, if you counter um, information technology space and disruption that's taking place there, Amazon is actually um, not in, in, in the tech space, as you know, it's in um, consumer discretionary. Many other names like Google and others are actually within communication services space. And I look at the valuation of those companies relative to valuations of something like REITs, Utes, Um, and other safe, um, safety, uh, safer bets and they are trading at a premium. So if we are worried about multiple compression, if we are worried about sort of uncertainty as it relates to regulation or potential, um, implication to the business model, I, I, you know, these companies still have growth. You know, you, you and I can talk about how much you're willing to pay for that growth. But again, if I take a step back and I ask, where is the growth going to come from it 's going to come from companies that are disrupting the status quo that have huge markets um, in the case of cloud computing, we have a market that's one hundred and thirty billion expected to triple over the next four years. Um, where are those opportunities um, and, and, and and basically trying to invest in the best of the best and that have the moat and have the longevity because of the sustainable um, sustainable levers. So again, um, I think it's a uh, company by company. I think this is a time to truly be active and diverse um, in terms of the number of names you're investing in, type of industries you're exposed to, um, and maybe this is a time to be a little bit more selective in terms of, you know, uh, where you are in various sectors.
1: And so, just before we let you go, Yana, when you think about the consumer, I think about exposure that you have to something like a Lowe's. How are you feeling about that as we go into sort of the peak season for those uh, those types of companies?
7: Uh, well, thank you for that. We, we are still uh, quite uh, constructive on the consumer based on some of the uh, data points that I shared with you. Um, Lowe's, unfortunately, has been a disappointing uh, performer here to date It's off almost 20% off its 52-week high, but this is a company that I think can uh, benefit on cyclical-related reasons as you talk about sort of seasonality and the housing space, repair and remodel space, um, having some levers with Better backdrop and then weather, but also a company that is undergoing its own um, um, restructuring story as it relates to margins and the improvements they can ma- make relative to their number one competitor. So, at these valuations, uh, we think there is an opportunity again for longer term oriented investors, um, and that remains one of our top positions.
0: All right, Yana Barton, thank you so much. Really appreciate your time today. Equity Portfolio Manager at Eaton Vance joining us on the phone from Boston.
1: Thanks for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show every weekday at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio.